Hi, and welcome to the March 14th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, uh, we're just in the book of Deuteronomy, and the reading is Deuteronomy 22 through 24. Once again, that's Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. Now, if you haven't read this, you know how this works. Hit pause, go back, read it for yourself, listen to what the Lord would say to you, and then come back and consider listening to what I've got to say about these texts. But if you've already read the passage, let's get started. Okay, so let's look at Deuteronomy 22. Uh, this chapter seems to divide up into three different sections. The first section is verses 1 through 4, and it has to do with, um, honestly, it has to do with loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, and, but, it, but it shows up in some very specific ways. And basically, um, if you uh, saw an animal that had run away from a neighbor... Or if you saw a neighbor's animal that got stuck in a ditch, you know, and again, re realize this may not be as relevant for us today uh, because when we think of animals, typically we think of dogs or cats. Back then, it would have been livestock. It would have been sheep. It would have been something that wasn't merely a pet. It was, you know, their source of, uh, you know, milk or meat or something of the sort. And so this was, you know, this was watching out for your neighbor's livelihood. So if you saw one of their animals run away or get stuck in a ditch, you were to step in and help and get the animal out of the ditch or take it back to your neighbor. And we're also told in this text that if you didn't know who the animal belonged to, well, you knew that it belonged to somebody, and so you were to take it to your home and care for it until the owner came looking for it. So basically, we realize that in verses 1 through 4, that the laws that God was giving to the people of Israel was one in which they were to watch out for each other. They were to love their neighbor as they loved themselves. And can you imagine a community where people are watching out not only for their own interests, but they're watching out for each other? I mean, that's just God is in this creating an ideal culture. Now, most certainly, it's also this culture where sin is taken very, very seriously. But once again, when you realize the destructive nature of sin, we understand why God is taking it so seriously and, in fact, why there are death sentences uh, that are pronounced. But we'll talk about that in just a second. The second part of this chapter is in verses 5 through 12. And it's talking about preserving natural distinctions. And a lot of times whenever I talk about what verses, uh, what the theme is, a lot of times I'm bringing this out of the contemporary standard Bible. And, uh, you know, it's just what the translators uh, put above many of these verses. Sometimes I change them, but a lot of times if you've got a contemporary standard Bible, I mean a, a Christian standard Bible, uh, you'll recognize that I'm using some of the same wording that they have. But um, whenever I uh, read this, uh, specifically whenever I read verse 5, honestly, this takes me back to my upbringing. Uh, I grew up uh, in a place where it, we didn't know any different, didn't know any better, but it was very legalistic. And by legalistic, what I mean is, is there were laws that were created 
uh, that were beyond God's laws. Almost, I mean, honestly, as I look back, I would say, well, it kind of is in tune with the Pharisees. Um, although I believe that many people that were a part of the the group that I was, the Baptist group that I was a part of, um, they're saved. They love the Lord, but uh, but it was it just came across as there there's a need for even more rules and more laws. Um, and so that that's the air that I breathed was legalism until I moved off to college and began reading books by A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God, and I experienced the revival in seminary of 1995 and began to breathe the air of grace and realized how beautiful grace is. But from that legalistic uh, worldview that I had growing up, verse 5 was, was, a, was a verse that was quite often cited in that group. Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman is not to wear male clothing, and a man is not to put on a woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. Now this is a verse that was used, and how it was applied was pants, are men's clothing, and therefore women were forbidden to wear pants. <laughs> you know, they could wear dresses, or they could wear, uh, I forget the terminology for what it is that they could wear. But, uh, but it, you know, I look back and realize how ridiculous that was, because whenever Deuteronomy 25, 22.5 was written, nobody was wearing pants. Both men and women were wearing a robe. You know, they were wearing robes. And so ver chapter 22, verse 5 said nothing about pants or things like that, you know, as to whether or not women could wear that. Um, I just believe that whenever we look at Scripture specifically, when we're looking at the law that was intended primarily and ultimately for the Israelites, we need to be very, very, very careful of how we apply it. Because if we apply it recklessly, we can take it away from its true intent. This has nothing to do with whether or not women can wear pants. I, I think that was ridiculous uh, whenever, now that I look back on it, and actually for the last 20, 30 years or so, as I've looked back on that and realized how ridiculous it was to say, Deuteronomy 22 was about pants. What I believe is that we can take the principle here and, and take out the general principle and how that drops down into our culture is men dress like men, women dress like women, you know? And that doesn't forbid women from wearing pants and uh, doesn't necessarily forbid them from wearing shorts, both of them, when they're, you know, out... Um, exercising or whatever else. It's just embrace the gender that God had you born as. If you're a woman, dress like a woman. Uh, if you're a man, dress like a man. Um, and, and also, we live in the New Testament, and so where there is no law or spirit of the law, then we're left up to our own convictions and our own conscience. Um, and also, we're left to how others may perceive, um, specifically how we dress. And so, I just you know think that the principle still applies, but uh, but it 
but it's not as hard and, and legalistic as, as I was led to believe. And I also want you to know that when we're drawing principles out of the Old Testament, we can't just pick and choose. We can't just say, hey, this one applies and this one doesn't. Because we look when we look at verse 5 and it says a woman is not to wear male clothing and a man is not to put on a woman's clothing. Well, if you just get four verses later, it says don't plant two types of seeds in your vineyard. Well, does anybody pay attention to that anymore? Or verse 11, don't wear clothing made of both wool and linen. Do, do you have clothing that you're wearing right now that, that mixes those together? And so what we do is, is a lot of times we cannot read it and jump immediately to application. Sometimes there is no application for us because it was only intended for the Israelites. But sometimes there is application, but we have to do the hard work of pulling out the general principle the general principle out of this. What was God getting at? What was he doing in this command? And then when we understand that general principle, that, inter that we're probably interpreting it, then we can drop it down into application. But we've got to be thinkers. We can't just have simple thinkers that are picking and choosing and then determining what, um, what it looks like in our contemporary world. Uh, verses 13 through 30 is the third and the final section of Deuteronomy 22, and it has to do with sexual conduct. And I tell you, there's some hard truths that are, that are in here, but one of the things we clearly understand when we read this passage is that God has no patience at all for adultery or rape. Um, it doesn't matter if it's consensual adultery. It does not matter. God has no time or patience for adultery and rape. And in the Old Testament, they uh, there was a death sentence that was required if that was engaged in. The only way that uh, something like that could happen, uh, and someone not someone's life not be taken, as we read the text, is if a woman was out in the field, a man caught her, and he forcibly. Uh, took advantage of her, well, it's assumed that she would have been screaming for help, but no one was there to hear, no one was there to help. Therefore, she did not, she would not die for this offense. She was the victim, and victims aren't, uh, they, they don't receive death sentences. The one thing that I was asked this morning uh, that has to do with this, asked by someone uh, this morning, was... Uh, you know, this whole thing about so many things in the Old Testament have to do, I mean, have to require a death sentence. The thing I pointed out was, yes, uh, you know, in our culture, uh, you only have the, the potential of getting a death sentence, but more than likely you'll get life in prison is if you kill someone else and it's a heinous crime. You didn't just kill, you killed them and it was a heinous crime. Um... And so then there's only the potential that you could receive the death penalty. And even then, it would take 10, 15, 20 years for that to probably be carried out. Um, but in the Old Testament, if you were rebellious against your parents, if you, I mean, if you, I mean, I joked with him and said, you know, if you looked at your neighbor funny, death sentence. If you did this, death sentence. Basically, God was saying that sin was no joking matter with him. No joking matter. Sin, something had to die when sin was committed. 
Now, we don't live under that now because what, what was God doing in all of this? God was demonstrating in the Old Testament that sin is so abhorrent and so offensive to him that it required a death. And, and we think, well, it's not that big of a deal. You know, I do this and I ask for forgiveness. I do this and ask for forgiveness. And in the Old Testament, it required a death sentence. Well, that's because God wanted us to realize just how heinous sin is in his eyes. It destroyed his creation in Genesis 3. It required the death of his dear son on the cross some 2,000 years ago. Sin is heinous in God's eyes, and it requires a death. But, friend, you and I live on this side of the cross. We live in the New Testament under the New Covenant, and therefore we don't have death sentences that are rendered because of all of these offenses we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, there needs to be consequences. Our judicial system needs to do its job and administer consequences, but there are um, no required death sentences from God on all of these other sins because Jesus took our death sentence for us. He took our death. He died in our place. And so when you read the Old Testament and you see how just everything, just tons of stuff required a death, realize that that ultimately pointed to Jesus who took our death, who died in our place. We were Barabbas who got to go free and Jesus went to the cross and praise him for it. Okay, so Deuteronomy 23. Now what I want to do with this chapter is just kind of hit some, some uh, high points. Um, because uh, th this chapter just deals with a lot of stuff, a lot of things, and I trust that you've already read this. So let's just look at a few things. One, verses 9 through 14, uh, we realize that laws were made, uh, by and large, to protect the Israelites from harmful bacteria and illness, and we see that in verses 9 through 14. I mean, I'm just going to read it to you, verses 12 and 13. It says, you are to have a place outside the camp and go there to relieve yourself. Uh, you are to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. That, that's what it says. Uh, it is in the Bible. It was what God gave to the people of Israel. This is before they understood uh, the dangers of poor sanitation um, and the plagues that have ravaged our country from roughly, I mean, our world from the 1300s to the 1900s. Um, many of those plagues either were created by poor sanitation or they were spread by poor sanitation, uh, where sewage in some cases just ran down the streets and it just spread like crazy. And so even then they weren't understanding why, how it was that this could spread things. Well, way before those times, the Lord was telling his people, I want you to take care of business outside the camp. Don't you do it where everybody's going to be around. You go outside the camp, plus you take a tool with you, you know, a, a shovel or something, and you dig a hole and you make sure everything's covered. And so the Lord is teaching them sanitation when it didn't even make sense to them. Uh, one of the other things we read about in, in this passage is verses 15 and 16. Uh, slavery and indentured servitude were allowed in the Old Testament. 
they were allowed. And even we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to Ephesians, when Paul is writing to the slaves and to the book of Philemon, uh, the letter to Philemon, when Paul wrote to a slave owner. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about slavery. But in the Old Testament, it was allowed. uh, But there were clear incentives that were written into the law that made it very, very important for a master to treat those that were working for him very well. One of the laws, this was not just a suggestion, this was actually a law. Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16, do not return a slave to his master when he has escaped from his master to you. That is actually a command. Do not return a slave to his master if he ran away from his master and he came to you. Verse 16, let him live among you wherever he wants. Okay, so now you see he's not a slave now. He gets to choose. He's a freedman. Let him live among you wherever he wants within your city gates. Do not mistreat him. Okay, so this was actually a command that if a slave ran away, then you were not to return him. So therefore, you see that when someone made themselves an indentured servant or someone was a slave to someone else, to an Israelite, that Israelite better treat those people that are putting themselves or were put in that position, they better treat them well because if they run away, uh, they're gone. And so with a slave, and while that the, even the concept is, is abhorrent to us in 21st century America, um, If you were a slave at that time, then in this setting, in this setting, you would be owned by your master. But your master, according to these two verses and other verses, had every reason to treat you very well so that you wouldn't want to run away. You want to stay and you want to work with him. So he's got incentive to treat you well. And your life also gets very simple. You don't have to worry about where your meal's coming from. You don't have to worry about your health. You don't have to worry about all of these other things. Your clothing, you don't have to worry about that. Your master's taking care of that. Your only job is to do whatever he's asking you to do. And so while that is in our individualistic society in 21st century America, that idea is abhorrent, it did exist in the Old Testament with the Israelites. But do not equate it with what happened here in our country. What happened in our country, by and large, was horribly abusive. Just read uh, the book Amazing Grace by Eric Metaxas, in which he uh, writes about uh, William Wilberforce, who led in the abolition of the slave trade in England that precipitated eventually in America setting its slaves free. But when you read about uh, what was going on in the slave trade, and yes, yes, of course, we know that there were those in Africa that were selling their own. They were capturing their own and selling their own. But one evil doesn't allow another evil. And um, when you read of all of the things that were going on and what they would do to these men and women, boys and girls, and then how they were treated by so many once they got here, do not take that understanding and force it back on the Old Testament. That's not what was going on. This was very different, very different. Okay, so in verses 19 through 20, um, the Israelites... uh, understood that interest on a loan was not necessarily bad. 
You know, if you gave a loan to someone else, you could charge interest. You just couldn't charge interest to a fellow Israelite. So interest wasn't bad, but you could only charge interest to someone who was not an Israelite. Uh, if it was a fellow Israelite and they needed money and you were able to give them a loan, you were not to charge them interest. And so what did this do? Once again, God is writing laws to create a sense of camaraderie, create a sense of community within the Israelites where they would be motivated to watch out for each other. Um, we read in verses 21 through 23 about keeping vows. You better not make a promise to God unless you plan to keep it because that is a very serious matter. And then in verses 24 and 25, we realize that if you were walking through a neighbor's vineyard, that you were free by the law, you were free by the law to gather some grapes, but only what you could put within your hand and what you could eat. You couldn't go in with a big bag and just start you know, unloading all of his grapes off the vine into your back. You couldn't do that. That's harvesting. But when you were walking, you know, around the field or maybe through the field, you could grab some things and just eat it, and and that's okay. That's okay. Um, there was the law allowed for that. Or when you were going through your neighbor's uh, grain field, uh, and Jesus did this. We're told one time as his disciples went through, they got the grain and they rubbed it in their hands, and they were eating the grain and throwing away the the shells, the husks, and the Pharisees got onto them supposedly for breaking the Sabbath. But but when Jesus led his disciples to eat some of what was in the field. He was just complying with Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. That was okay. You just couldn't go in with a sickle and start harvesting. So once again, this created a climate where people were not so much individualistically minded. They were community minded. Uh, they were watching out for each other. Uh, they didn't feel that it was wrong to take a little bit from someone else that was allowed in law. And those that were having, you know, some people take a few things from their field, it was okay. The law allowed for it because God wanted them to build a sense of community and camaraderie. What would it be like if we lived in a place like that? I, th I think here in America, it, we need to realize that there is no Christian culture. People have said that this is a Christian nation. There has never been a Christian nation. Our nation has been greatly influenced by a Christian worldview. That's true, but there's never been a Christian nation. Uh, all cultures uh, have good, virtually all cultures have roughly good points, and uh, they certainly have bad points that the gospel needs to speak into. One of the things about American culture is I really think we tend to be too individualistic. We tend to focus too much on the self and on the rugged individualism. That's what's made America great is the, the individual that can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. We don't need other people. Well, I really think that as we look at the, the Old and the New Testament, we realize that a, that a good, godly society where we're free to love the Lord and we're free to love our neighbors, we love ourselves, is one where we're a bit more community-oriented than, than maybe we are here in America. And so never be afraid to speak the gospel into whatever culture you live in because all of us are sinful and uh, all of our cultures, to, some ex to one extent or another, are sinful and we need God's word to speak into it.
Okay, so Deuteronomy 24. Um, now, there are some, uh, the, the passages from verses 6 through 9 that talks about uh, protecting life and putting up boundaries around life to protect life and value life. And uh, then verses 10 through 22, uh, where we're told to uh, protect and provide uh, for people, especially those that are in need, especially those that are in need. These are very good passages, but I want to camp out in verses 1 through 5 uh, for Deuteronomy 24. Um, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, is a passage that is quoted in the New Testament. In fact, if you've been following this this podcast, uh, then you know that uh, a few days ago, maybe it was, was it a week ago, week and a half ago, something like that, when we dealt with Mark chapter 10, I referred to this passage because Jesus did. Um, the... Uh, Religious folks had come to Jesus and said, uh, hey, you know, what about divorce? And so Jesus spoke into it. What did Moses say? Well, they essentially quoted or at least gave the jest of Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. Now, just in a nutshell, Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 says this. It says that if there is a man uh, that marries a woman, and for some reason he finds something about her, and it's not that's not elaborated on, you know, and that that the reason that's the reason why there was such a division in first cent in the first century as to what was what what allowed for a divorce is because Moses didn't specifically deal with it. He just said if there's something indecent found in her, well, what was that was. Was it the fact that he discovered that she had been messing around with somebody else? Or was was it something much, much less offensive than that? Well, we're not told, but Moses says, as the Lord's Holy Spirit is leading him, says that if a man marries a woman and he finds something undesirable, something indecent in her, then he is to, and the three steps of divorce is write out the certificate, number two, put it in her hand, number three, send her away. And so the man would divorce his wife. Now, Moses continued to write, now if someone else finds that woman and he wants to marry her, and so, you know, he's uh, he gets married to this woman who has, who has been divorced, well, if that second husband, if he divorces her so that now she's been divorced twice, or even if he dies, the command in Deuteronomy 24 is the first husband cannot have her back. Even if the second husband dies and now she's a widow, the first husband cannot have her back. That's the command. Uh, and what Jesus said in Mark 10 is that essentially Moses was not dealing with ideals, with the ideal situation. The ideal situation, as you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and what Jesus quoted from the beginning, he created them male and female and uh, brought them together. The two were to become one, where what God has put together, let no man separate. That's the ideal. But what was Moses doing? He was simply managing the sin. That's what Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 is. He was managing what was already going on and saying, okay, you know what? I know this is going on. Let me tell you, this is the line. This is where it stops. This is where it stops. And so we see, in fact, in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, that God's Holy Spirit wrote through Moses and allowed for divorce, but set it up so that there were fences around even that, 
Now, if you want to read a little bit further on the topic of divorce, I would encourage you to read Matthew 19. I would also encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul talked about that quite a bit. But I want you to now just look at verse 5. Verse 5 is quite a bit more positive. Um, and th this, is, this is what Christians and this is what churches ought to be. We should be known for what we are against, but we should even much more so be known for what we are for, right? We're not just um, you know, against the sort of marriages that would end up in divorce. I mean, even when that happens, God's grace is there to cover if someone is truly repentant. But as we've talked about before, um, not all divorces are sin. You know, in Matthew chapter 1, it says, Moses, I mean, um, Joseph being a righteous man, so the Bible actually calls him righteous. Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace Mary publicly, decided to divorce her privately. And so even as Joseph was in the process of getting ready to divorce Mary, the Bible in that process, as he's getting ready to divorce her, the Bible calls him righteous. So I want you to know that not all people that get a divorce are sinful. I mean, if, if like in Joseph's situation, you have or had a spouse that was unfaithful. In Mary's situation, not just what Joseph thought, not just unfaithful, but she's pregnant with someone who is not his, then the Bible actually called him righteous when he was preparing to divorce her. So I just want you to know that don't listen to what people tell you, what pastors told you. Be a person of the word. Dig into the word to find out what it has to say. But we ought not be primarily known for what we're against. We ought to be known for what we're for. You know, while God's grace is there for those whose divorce was sinful, and not all are sinful, we ought to be known for cultivating godly marriages so that, by and large, divorces don't happen, or at least don't happen as frequently. That's what we ought to be for. We ought to be pro-marriage and pro-good marriage, not just grit your teeth and just stay married and, you know, God will give you what you need. No, let's look at God's Word to find out what principles He's given to us to have a marriage that is satisfying, where your marriage is thriving. Well, one of the principles that God has given to us uh, that I have actually encouraged married couples to comply with as best as they can is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. Listen to this. This is so positive. When a man takes a bride, he must not go out with the army or be liable for any duty. He is free to stay at home for one year so that he can bring joy to the wife he is married. Now, I know that we're living in a different time, in a different culture. We are not Israel, therefore this doesn't apply. You can't go to your boss and say, hey, I want a year off. You can't go to the military and say, hey, I want a year off if you have signed up for the military. Um, but we can, by and large, encourage younger couples who are getting married to do the best they can to comply with this principle. Um, I've counseled people that, hey, you know what, your first year of marriage, don't get so crazy busy. Spend time with each other. Make memories, you know, get get to know each other. Um, and 
Deuteronomy 24.5 actually encourages couples to do this, where be careful of the busyness that can distract you from each other. But in that first year, the foundation of your marriage, build it strong, get to know each other, enjoy each other, go on dates together, go on adventures, go on a vacation together, uh, take pictures, write in a journal together, and just build on that. Um, because what you do in that first year is going to play out for years and years and years to come. And so I think Deuteronomy 24 is a wonderful, wonderful passage that we ought to encourage, that you ought to encourage. If you've got kids or grandkids that are getting married, encourage them to do the best they can to kind of back off on a lot of the busy stuff so that they can spend time with each other that first year of marriage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as we are kind of coming to an end, or at least nearing the end of the tunnel of these books in the Old Testament that dealt with the law that were not directly written to us, they were written to the Israelites. Lord, I pray that as we've taken this journey that we see the benefit in them while some of them do not apply to us, others, in principle, can still apply to us and we can receive the benefit of them. So, Lord, I pray that our minds would be engaged, that even as we're reading in the Old Testament, that our minds would be engaged looking for what it is that you're saying, convinced that it is for our good, and trying to properly understand uh, how it is that we can apply the principles that we see. Lord, you are such a good God. You are so loving. You're not just ultimately about yourself, although you have every right to be that. There's none greater than you, and therefore you must be about yourself. You're the God of all creation. But yet, in your laws that you have given to the Israelites and you've given to us, it is intended for human flourishing. You desire that we flourish as men and women, boys and girls, in the societies, in the cultures that we're in. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to read and live out these principles in our life. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've spent another day looking through God's Word. I'm looking forward to tomorrow when we're going to be back in the uh, New Testament with Mark chapter 14, but uh, we'll get to that tomorrow whenever, whenever we get there. Looking forward to spending time with you all tomorrow. I hope you have a good rest of the day. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. <music>